Welcome to the conversation. So we'll start with the three questions over the last three issues, yep. as quickly or as briefly as you want. Um, the first question was, what is the most important idea in education? Well, there's so many different ideas that have, um, that have been coming to a head, I'd say, in the past couple of years. Um, and in a way, we've been a little bit blinded by our focus on um making sure that students achieve progress in the way that we understand progress, i.e. numbers. Um, and I think the sea change has come about quite recently in, uh, in, a, in a way that um, has removed the, um, the value of the number in learning, um, which is really interesting. Um, what, what do you think has brought about that change? Um, I think... Uh, there's lots of there's there's a there's a multitude of different things. I think the uh, the way that education has been talked about globally, um, and the OECD um, global competencies document uh, has helped. Um, but the 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 conversations around um, high performance learning, the conversations around whole education, um, the network, the future future learning, um, has all sort of um, it's all talking about the the value of learning at a deep level and a deep understanding level, uh, and a multi and interdisciplinary level, as opposed to a singular um, judgment of a student's understanding based on a particular moment in time and a particular recall of that moment in time. Uh, so I think we've moved on from that as a profession, um, or I hope we have. So we're now um, in a position where we're looking at. Uh, ways in which we can um, enhance that learning and enhance the opportunities for that learning, whether it's the interconnectedness or whether it's the acknowledgement of the plasticity of the brain or whether it's the teaching of uh, very specific metacognitive skills um, so that student recall is enhanced um, and, um, uh, and also so that, um, so that we can make schools a better happier place for students so that we can compensate for the um, the increase in mental health issues in students because I think actually what's happened as a knock-on effect of our concentrating on the um, the number and concentrating on the uh, the individual and the, the the recall of knowledge and the judgment in a very summative way uh, that's caused a lot of stress in the profession mm -hmm. and it's caused a lot of stress with students uh, and it's also caused a lot of stress with staff um, because there's been such a top-down accountability structure from government through Ofsted to uh, leadership teams into the classrooms onto the students, um, and there's also you know there's a, there's a flowchart of pressure mm. that you could quite easily construct to demonstrate you know where that pressure's come from and where it's gone to. But ultimately, it's had an effect on students' mental health, and now we're in a position where we have to rewind and think how can we do something about that. Mm. So the second question was what is the purpose of education? 
Now, there's a number of different um, theories around what the purpose of education is. Um, there's the, the the theory where you um, you're preparing students for the the workforce. Um, you're preparing students to um, to to fulfil the needs of the economy. Um, you're preparing a, a student to operate in society in a way in which you want them to operate. Um, I think in today's society, though, we, it's it's um, there's a, there's a moral imperative there as well that talk, that that talks some way towards saving the world, um, and the purpose of education is to make sure that the students understand the impact that they're having on the environment and on on the world and on each other, um, and to develop an understanding of the relationship that they have between each other in society and the world as a whole, um, so that we can make the make the world a better place, so that we can make each other better people. Um, and so that we can all live happily ever after. <laughs> is that why you got into teaching uh, I, in the first place? In, in the first place, I got into teaching. Um, I actually got into teaching as a result of reading All Our Futures um, by mm-hmm. Ken Robinson. Um, and at the same time, um, I, when I started training, uh, I was having conversations with Anthony Gormley about the purpose of creativity and art in mm-hmm. education and the 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 the, um, the value of artists in residence because I was previously an artist in residence um, so I got into teaching with a creativity um, a creativity badge if mm-hmm. you like um, but as soon as I got into teaching um, I, I started to understand the inequalities that existed in society and started to develop um, a uh, an, an ethic or a value in myself that wanted to compensate for that and wanted to to help that because mm. you know growing growing up um, I wasn't um, I, I wasn't from a wealthy family I wasn't from a wealthy background um, and I you know I sort of fell into university and did really well and fell into the profession and did really well uh, and it's a, a, you know it's, it's as a result of the opportunities that I fell into um, and I think that we can do a lot by providing those opportunities rather than just opening them up for students to fall into. Mm. Now, obviously, now as a as a principal of an academy, it, how much do you believe it's true that we can change the world through schools, through this school? I think the the way that you structure the curriculum can have a major impact on the students' perception of themselves. Mm. Uh, And I think that the way that you talk to students and the culture that you have in a school can change the way that students think about themselves, talk talk to themselves and talk about themselves. And that ability to talk themselves up in their head Mm. means that they become more aspirational. Um, And so I think we're developing a, a movement really at Mounts Bay, um, where we have more students from um, lower socioeconomic backgrounds that are aspiring to greater things. Mm. Um, you know, we've got sons and daughters of firemen who are aspiring to go to Eton. Mm. We've got, um, you know, we've got single parent families who have got children who are at Oxford and Cambridge. Mm. And um, we're seeing this uh, on a year on year basis increasing. Um, so I do think that those students that are going out there and, and, and doing those things and getting those degrees and, and developing that knowledge, they are changing the, um, their, they are changing their place in society. And I think that's, that's what the movement's about. It's changing, uh, the, the way that society is structured, um, to make it more equal. 
Um, and if you can make society more equal, then the more people will feel like they can change the world for the better. Yeah. Um, which is what is, is you know it's what's happening at the moment with the with the children that are striking. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit tragic that they're striking the, um, to stop their education um, yeah. to save the world. Whereas actually, we need to be changing education so that we can enable them to save the world. Mm. So one of the ways schools do that, obviously, is through designing a curriculum that allows them to transform themselves from wherever they've come from into these aspirational people that are making wonderful performances though. So what what should the curriculum be? Well this is a it's a sort of movable feast uh, at the moment I would say. I think we're in the very early days of, of uh, designing a curriculum which uh, which allows this um, leveling of the playing field. Um, there are some things that we know about that um, that are their truths that we need to be looking at and we need to be working with. But because schools are, um, they, they, for, for years we've been locked into the, um, the hierarchy of subjects where English, Maths and Science are at the top of the hierarchy um, and uh, every other subject is being squeezed uh, across the country if it's not an EBAC subject or not, you know, it doesn't fit into a particular bucket. Um, in a, in a, a, well, it, it, if it doesn't fit into a particular bucket alongside other things that fit into that bucket, um, so um, you know things things that things that have come you know that, that have come to my uh, into my small brain recently um, are you know the the way that the brain grows when you study a language, mm-hmm. um, the way that the brain you know physically grows when you're learning a musical instrument or um, music um, appreciation. Uh, and if we can start to harness that and understand that plasticity of the brain is one aspect, but growing the brain is another aspect, mm-hmm. if you can marry those two together, you've got something that's quite powerful. And if the curriculum um, is is allowing all students to develop their brains in that way, then you've got a very um, you've got a very good um, con- a set of conditions mm-hmm. to to build from. Is there not a case that? Aside from that, you know the the neuroscience that says the you know the brain physically changes when you learn uh, music or a language. It, surely there's an argument though that that knowing another language and being able to play an instrument or appreciate music at a deep level, or and even to appreciate art and paint or you know whatever medium you, you're working in, that surely deepens your experience as a human being, whatever it's doing to the brain. So surely there's an argument. Outside of just neuroscience, yeah, oh, of course, of course, um, and actually, you know, society has, has grown and developed because of the understanding of the arts in particular, mm. but also science. Um, yeah. You know, there's 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 an argument that was in my head this morning, um, which was around as I was eating my breakfast, which was around the fact that science is uh, is responsible for the all the bad things in the world, um, as well as all the good things in the world, because you know the 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 plastics, the the pollution, the you know the massive developments that we've got in society and nuclear energy and things like that that are hugely damaging to the world. But also at the same time, we've got we've got the sciences that are developing solutions to those. Um, and somewhere along somewhere along the way, there's a there's an ethical, values driven, religious approach which we haven't really got to grips with in education recently. I would say. Mm. So I think we need to do some thinking around that. Um, it strikes me that one thing schools could do is think a little bit more about the sort of society that we want to create in the future and decide on uh, the sort of curriculum that will make the sort of people we want this country to be like in the future. 
Do you know what I mean? So what is it? I know we do citizenship and so on, but it surely, seems surely, to me... Isn't that, um, do we not want everybody to uphold the decent British values? Isn't that what we do? Well, um, are they clearly defined? You know, I as think a... they're very clearly defined. Go on in. I'm being extremely facetious. Oh, OK. Well, I was going to say, but, you know, there must be, out there a conversation in education about what it is. And I, I, the reason I'm saying this is because... One of the things that I think Dylan Williams says is four different modes of curriculum, one of them obviously being preparation for work, one of them being preparation for uh, you know being a citizen. Um, but one of them was about sort of knowledge transmission. And it, it strikes me that, there's, that we need a conversation not only about a knowledge versus skills curriculum and, uh, you know, not and or. And or. The, the full stack. Yeah, exactly. We, we, yeah, exactly, yeah. But also, when we talk about which knowledge do we actually want the kids to know, but it strikes me that we need a really good conversation about which bits of knowledge to pass down to the next generation. And you know, for, for example, yeah, obviously Shakespeare has been passed down over the last few hundred years, but how many writers haven't been passed down? You know, that's a, a conscious choice by educational establishments to part to transmit that knowledge. Do you, do you see what I'm getting at? Yeah. So there are certain things we choose to to transmit to the future, I guess. Well, there's a certain perspective um, that we've always selected mm. to transfer to students, is, which is the curriculum, isn't it? So the, you know, the, the syllabus and the curriculum. Mm. Um, so we've got a particular Western view of um, history, for instance. Mm. I talk specifically about the history of art. You know, the, if, you, if you were to study the history of art in the 1980s, mm. there were very few women artists in mm -hmm. the world um, before the 1960s. But actually... There were loads, yeah. Um, but the perspective, yeah, for, of, a, of a male-dominated examination system and a male-dominated um, hierarchy mm. that has, um, in in a way, planted the um, the 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 knowledge that we want to keep hold of mm. uh, to perpetuate the inequalities that are already inherent in society. Yeah. So therefore, it's beholden to us redesigning a new curriculum to have a serious conversation about which knowledge. What, uh, in literature, they call it the canon. You know, what, what books should be in the canon? Yeah. And I had a, a talk by Noam Chomsky recently. He talked about the fact that the canon, all, you know, up to recently, was entirely dead white males. Yes. You know, your Shakespeare's and your Keats and your Yates and you know, all, that, yeah. all those sort of people. But actually, there's no black voices in there. There's no women voices yeah. in there. There's no, from this country, there's no Commonwealth voices in there. It's the same with the arts and it's the same yeah. with, with the sciences. Um, yeah. And it's the same with your historians, mm. um, you know. And we also have a habit of shielding society from the atrocities that happen. Yeah. Um, you yeah. Know, whichever whichever country you're in, mm. um, and I think with the 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 growth of the World Wide Web, um, it's much more difficult to shield. Um, so in a in a way, that knowledge has been much more um, democratic. Uh, and accessible to, to everybody. So in a way, the curriculum should provide opportunities for students to develop their uh, connoisseurship of knowledge yeah. and their ability to um, to identify uh, which which knowledge is truth and which knowledge is not truth. Yeah. I mean, the, the democratisation of, of information, I would say, on the internet is, is vast, but I wouldn't say it's all knowledge, no, because as we know... Some of it's misknowledge. <laughs> exactly. Some of it's... Complete rubbish, isn't it? Um, so it, that leads me on to skills then, because I think one of the skills we must teach kids is the able, the, the ability to 
think critically and to examine information that they read or receive, you know, to determine what's fake news and what isn't um, and make their, their own judgments based on critical thought, analysis, evaluation. Um, so what other skills in a knowledge slash skills curriculum do you think we need? Well, there's a lot of work that's been done, done on this across the years. And uh, one of the major, um, one of the major skills that, that, is is just goes without saying is um, is creativity and flexibility, um, which is you know it, it comes into even even developing critical thinking, um, creativity and flexibility comes into that, um, and I think that we've been guilty in education of uh, squeezing that out over the past number of years, mm-hmm. squeezing creativity out of the curriculum. I mean, I'm saying that is generally, not necessarily at Mounts Bay, because we've increased our mm-hmm. creative approach, we've increased the creative subjects, um, we've increased our creativity within the sciences, we've increased our creativity across the whole board in mathematics. Um, but I think in a lot of schools, they've squeezed the creative curriculum and they've squeezed a lot of creativity out of the profession, mm-hmm. uh, which has become dangerous. And that's one of the reasons why I think we've got a, uh, a series of disenfranchised teachers, because they haven't been allowed to develop their own creativity mm. uh, they've been told what to do and they've been inspected on that thing that they've been told to do mm. uh, as opposed to being valued as professionals who have had a lot of training to do the job that they do yeah so uh, obviously i was just telling you about elsewhere in the issue i'm reprinting a speech by uh, the amp and it, so what what's your take on whether we should you know if we had carte blanche should we do away with examinations at 16 and and create something completely different and more through these, school. We've got these arbitrary points in time where yeah. we make judgments about children's lives. And um, the, 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 uh, the very strange place that we're in at the moment is that there is an increase on judgments that are being made in the early years mm. prior to students then joining the rest of their lives. Yeah. And those judgments that have been made in at age four and five are then dictating the flight paths that we expect students to go on for the rest of their lives. Now, we all know that students develop at different stages and different rates mm. in different months, let alone you know different year groups. Yeah. Um, and so there's there's a there's there's a there's a there's a there's an argument to say that we should ditch all examinations because what are what are they worth? They're just a judgment in time, but actually. Society needs some sort of measure for some uh, areas of life. Yeah. Um, now, the the gap between primary school and secondary school uh, is an arbitrary gap because it's still um, you you still have to go to school. And now, the gap between sixteen and eighteen, post sixteen, as in the GCSEs, is also arbitrary mm. because you still got to go to school. Um, the only judgment that can be made from a GCSE is whether or not you're able to go on and do A-levels. Mm. And again, that's not always a correct judgment because of the um, multiple things that impact on a student's performance yeah. in a GCSE exam. Um, so the argument to re- I completely understand the argument to re- re- remove GCSEs and I completely understand the argument to remove Key Stage 2 SATs because mm. that's in the same, you know, mm. in the same canon, if you like. Um, but I don't think society is ready for that yet. Mm. And I don't think universities are ready for that yet. Yeah, I mean, you need a robust way of measuring preparedness for particular courses at university. Once you specify a degree course, you need to be able to show you're ready for that. But it strikes me that that needn't be having done two years previously 
eight, ten GCSEs. No, and interestingly, um, they did And then only three. It always struck me as very reductive to go from I did ten GCSEs many years ago, and then down to three science, uh, three obviously science, but three A levels. That was it. Yeah. And I enjoyed many courses. It, real, it was a real difficult decision. Yeah. I dropped things that I would have loved to study further. Yeah. Um, what's your take on that? No, I, for I me, you, I, I would keep it broader for as long as well. Possible. The other, the other thing to to think about is, you know, if if the curriculum should be a broad curriculum because it's preparing you for life, then knowledge is only one aspect of mm. that. Um, and when you, if you choose not to go to university, because at the end of the day all the exams are really doing is preparing you to get to university. Mm. Um, then when you go into the world of work, there, there's so much um, um, so much information out there about what you know, people like in the big businesses like Google, Amazon yeah. and Apple, they don't even look at GCSEs and A-levels and, yeah. and degrees anymore. There are aptitude tests, there mm. are skills tests, there are relationship tests there are, yeah. you know, that they do, which are, you know, just as, as you were saying, mm. they're things that will make you operate successfully in that area. Yeah. But they might become the the examinations of the future. Well, then, yeah. That'd be interesting. Right, okay, we'll, we'll wrap it up with this. What advice would you give to uh, younger staff uh, joining the profession in terms of the uh, – well, I heard it described recently that the pendulum is swinging back away from the sort of Govian focus on, on data and measures and all that towards a bit more – Autonomy. Yeah, yeah, for school. So I think uh, I, I would agree with that statement. I think um, the autonomy is moving back into schools. The ability for us as a profession to um, to be creative about the way in which we prepare students in our localities for the world or for the next phase of their life is really refreshing and exciting. Um, and I think that um, that is uh, that is something which is. Um, which is which makes teaching a much better prospect. Um, it makes teachers feel a lot, um, a lot more um, well comfortable in their own skins, really, because the, we've spent spent an awful lot of time developing the um, developing the skills in our armory of being a teacher, mm-hmm. uh, only to then be told over the past few years that a lot of those skills aren't aren't necessary they're not useful uh, because this is what you have to teach and this is how you have to teach it um, so in a, in a way it's removing the reins from the teaching profession so that they can flourish uh, and they can be better teachers and that will make the teaching profession a lot happier place to operate in best job in the world 